This is Collaboration Booster, a podcast on how to improve teamwork. Episode 4. Don't know. Ask. With philosopher Nicole Desbouvry. Nicole Desbouvry is a female freelance philosopher, epistemologist and writer. She finished her PhD in philosophy, art and critical thought in August 2015 by defending her dissertation on the necessity of the impossible at the European Graduate School. As a freelance philosopher, she focuses on writing. Right now she's writing a book about peace and helps people who are facing a personal struggle and want to have meaningful conversations that are not focused at solving a problem, but are meant to broaden the perspective on how to approach it. I met Nicole at the Swiss Talent Forum 2016, where she told 70 young scientists how they can use philosophical thinking to create new ideas to an existing question. Nicole and I talked for about an hour about the value of not knowing and asking, and I decided that this talk was so interesting that I want to share it almost in its entirety. We set out with one of the really big questions in philosophy. What can we know? Thousands of years people have already thought about what can we know and how can we know? What are the limits of our knowing? And I think it's like uh, as if we are all our own little worlds. Like um, We understand reality in a certain way, which is influenced by our experiences and by language and by culture the way we've been raised. And this makes us experience and know reality in a certain way. But then we think of how can we actually know others? Or how can we work together with other people who are living in their own little world? How can we know that we actually have something in common that we can build on or that we can... We use words now, but how can I know that you understand them in the same way? Mm -hmm. In a a certain way, you don't. We're both not native English speakers, so maybe we both translate it to our own languages, and those are informed by our own experiences of childhood and of the books we've read and the newspaper we read and the television we see the people that we talk to. So, I can't even know what you think. And I, in a way, that is very sad. And that's why we ask questions. And how is the asking questions improving on that? <coughs> Not able to really know. Or how, how can it be an improvement on that? Well, I think not every question is an improvement on that. There are certain types of questions, or where, what is a question? I mean, is this, if it just has a question mark, is it a question? I don't think it is. I think only a question is that looks for something that they don't know yet. So what is unknown, we really ask for that. <clears throat> There's many questions that just ask to, or just repeat what we've already said. Yeah, to confirm what we already thought ourselves. Yes, exactly. 
So it's kind of a rhetorical question or a political question. We already know the answer, but we just want the confirmation. So this is not really a question, I would say. And then you also have the kind of a reality check question, I think. It's like, uh, I say something and then I want to know if you actually understood what I said in the way that I've meant, to meant what I said. So it's a kind of a, it's a humble kind of question, like, I, I explain something to you and I ask you to repeat it in your own words so that I know how we relate to each other. So I think these are important questions because then you know where everybody stands. But then that is not even a real question because it's also not asking for something completely new. What is a real question for you? It's a dangerous kind of question because it dares to give up your own feeling of that you know what is going on. So it, it really is a, it makes you very vulnerable. It's totally an open kind of attitude that you have to have. Um, it's not from the ego, for instance. It's not from the world that you know that's just a safe place and it, that confirms you constantly. But it's a, it's an openness. It's a, it's a, I like what Badiou, it's a, it's a French philosopher. He talks about the faithful subject. And this has nothing to do with religion, but it has to do that when you really want something completely new, which he calls an event, so something that breaks through and that ruptures your whole world, when you really want something like that happening, then you need to be faithful to only that process. So you can't be faithful to yourself, and your own identity and what you already know. You have to be, it's a kind of a radical attitude. So it's a kind of an open-mindedness, but there's also something more, I think. You need to have a certain friendship with the person who talks to you, or, or where this newness comes from. If you already have a hostile attitude, uh, <clears throat> then you already have judged what the other will say. We... So it means that it's a, a good question can be better asked in a in a relationship that is mutual that is open yeah there needs to be a certain respect because the other like um, this this otherness is very important like if we only talk to friends that we think are the same then this is also not a real friendship this is just a confirmation of myself and who I am. But the real other is the one who can never be me. Who is always, there's always this strangeness and this distance. And because there is this distance, this gap, there can be also this newness that comes in if I have the right attitude and the, the openness to that. But there still needs to be a certain respect of this otherness. Mm -hmm. If I see the same in the other, right from the start, then I already 
disregard the newness that it can bring. Sounds to me like there's also an acknowledgement of what you said before, the knowing that I can never know. Even if the other person expresses an answer towards me when I ask him or her a question, I can never be sure that I really know what this means. So I have to be open and respectful um, yeah. also in, in realizing that, in knowing that I will never understand everything. Yes. When I tell something new, or what I think is very radical... And then people, you see, they don't really listen. Or they, they're in their own minds and they're thinking their own thoughts. And the first thing they say, I understand. That's the first thing they say. And then, you know, they don't understand because it's not, it cannot be understood. That's the whole point, sometimes, to talk. So this means that when you ask questions, when you dare to ask questions, you also need to have time. Mm -hmm. if, if you ask other people a question, you need to have time to listen to them, to process, to think about what they said and not, not immediately put it into some kind of context or system that you have built for yourself. <clears throat> yeah, I think normally... We don't want something completely new, because that's uh, that means we would have to change the way we look at the world every moment. That's very tiresome. Like, there's many cases where you just accept, okay, this is a bear and he's coming to attack me. I run. You don't say, okay, what kind of bear is it? What shall we do? How can we look at bears or... Am I really a person here? Or maybe the bear doesn't see me as a person. No. This, is, this kind of reflection at that moment is not very important. But there's other moments where you, you, you have to take this time and things might change completely. And this is, um, is a scary thing because you might think like, oh, you know something very well. Like, this is really what, I, what I'm certain of. How can you let go of those thoughts or those attitudes? Normally you can't, I think. The bear example is interesting for me because I'm, I'm coming from a context of work, of, of working together. That's my main interest. Like, how do groups improve their working together their teamwork and um, they are not in the bear situation but they maybe are also not in the um, situation where they have the luxury to think for a long time about something so I wonder is there some middle ground we can talk about like kind of how can we take this attitude of asking questions but apply it in a more pragmatic sense um like how can we improve the questions that we ask to understand better what we're talking about in the context of doing things together i think if you there is a method that i really like it's a, it's yeah there's different names for it you could call it deliberative democracy or bahai consultation um, but that focuses on 
that there's a difference between an issue and your personal attachment to the issue. If you are in a group and you talk about a certain problem, then we have this emotional attachment often that we think a certain answer is, is going to be the right answer and we want to protect that answer and we want to defend it and we fight for it. But sometimes the group is not ready for that kind of answer or maybe it's the wrong answer for that moment and that place. So in this kind of consultation process, you would listening is very important still, but also to know that if you give something to the group, at that moment it's not yours anymore. It's just one of the arguments on the table. And if it's, if it's not picked up, if nobody works with it, then it's apparently it doesn't make sense for this certain problem. So it's kind of a letting go of your personal attachment. So that means that if you look for this radical new change, it's not going to be a change of your identity, which is very hard to do and it should be a personal project or a personal process. But it can, there can be, for the issue, there can be a radical new. As long as you don't have your emotion in there. This sounds to me like it's what you offer to the group. It's like a gift you give away. And when you give a gift, it, you don't have any expectations what the others do with it. You give the gift and um, maybe they use it, maybe they don't, maybe they uh, put it in a drawer. Um, but you have to let it go at the moment you give it. That's true. Yeah. And but but then how can we accept the gifts of others? Yeah, because that is what's happening in the group. The other people also give these gifts, and that is where the moment where good questions are important. So this these kind of reality check questions: Is this what you mean? Is this the right way to understand it? So if you put these things that are given in different words, often you already see that you actually meant the same thing. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's about asking back about the gift. It's asking back, what do you intend with it? What can I do with it? What is it for? But it's also asking, like, I understand it like this. Is this correct? Is this also what you mean? Not already going to an implementation, but first, to accept a gift, we have to first know it and accept it. Otherwise mm -hmm. we say, oh, I understand, and we continue. And that it's too quick. Then we, all, then we stay in our own worlds. We first need to truly understand what the other person says. Or at least try to understand, because yeah. we will never be 100% able to. But uh, So you talked about the asking question part and also about the context in which I can ask these questions. It's, it's if, if everybody lets go of their own individual project or individual emotions and goals and brings it to the group and acknowledges that the group is, again, a different body and expects something different than I expect myself. Yeah. 
So is there anything else about that context in which we ask questions that is important? I think there's certain humbleness involved that you know that the legitimacy of the group, so what makes it true and what makes it good, is not you. It's not the fact that you are so good and give all your great insights. It's about the group going through this process of truly wanting to understand each other and to work towards a problem or a solution of that very problem. That is what makes it a good process. And that requires a lot of um, respect for the group and, and humbleness, I would say. To me, it sounds almost like an alchemical process, you know, or, or maybe like a, a soup cooking where different things come together and you know that it will transform into something completely new if you just let that happen and if you're not clinging to your own answer or to your own uh, solution. It's kind of being a catalyst. You know, it is in the chemical process, there's a catalyst often that brings down the, like the... The, the heat that is needed, for instance, for a certain process to take place. If there's enough catalysts, uh, I don't know in English how you say it, catalysts. No, then, I think it's the right term. Yeah. yeah then, uh, then the process can take place. And without those, you would need an, you know, inhuman amount of knowledge and input so I'm maybe, the, maybe the good questions are the catalysts for this process to take place do you think that in a group context where people are not that um, skilled yet at doing this can a facilitator or someone who steers the the process in a humble way without interfering uh can that be that catalyst as well I think it's more than a catalyst, this, this <coughs> facilitator. Because <coughs> the facilitator can also tell people to go back or step back if they've overstepped their role as in a group. So they can also remove certain dysfunctional elements. So it's more than a catalyst. It's a service to the group somehow. Yeah, it's a, it's maybe the pot where the all the elements go in, and sometimes they, somebody burps and it goes over. You know, if it's a soup, <laughs> sometimes uh, it doesn't fit, and that's okay if a certain something is said, and sometimes emotions go very high in a group. Then the facilitator can go back and say, okay, if went through this and now that is outside of this process now let's focus again on the issue i was wondering if we step out of the group again and we go to what i assume you do as a philosopher which might be completely wrong but i assume you do a lot of thinking on your own so basically in a way you are asking the questions and you're answering them yourself is that a right um, assumption? Yeah, but I have a lot of friends. 
mostly dead friends <laughs> in the form of books. Okay. And those thinkers, they've already thought through something. And every word they've written down is a, is a, also a, it's the outcome of a process in themselves. Mm-hmm. So they, I can take those words and they, they are my input. And I ask them back. Or I, I, I walk around with these questions in my head and then I find another book or another writer who answers it. But you are right. The problem is, do I only read what I already know? Which is, again, a confirmation of my understanding. Or can I read something that is completely different and that really triggers something completely new in me? Mm -hmm. I think uh, mostly we can't read something that we don't already know. So can we ask something completely new? You were talking about this process of, of this event that creates something new. Um, how can we know that we're asking a question that has the potential at least it, you, we, because we don't know but has at least the potential to produce a really new thought a really new answer I don't think there's questions like that because okay. a question already has a certain type of answer or a certain limit to what the answer might be so questions are always limited Uh-huh. But there are certain experiences in life. I think maybe love or a certain political event. Understanding a certain mathematical truth that could that can change the way you look at things. So the questions remain the same, but the context in which we ask them... No, sometimes so questions will disappear. <laughs> mm-hmm. I'm writing a book now about the question of peace. And this deals exactly with the fact that it is a question. That we try to answer this question of how can we get lasting peace in the world. And to answer that, we look to the world that we already know. Because we understand the word peace in a certain way. Mm-hmm. It's related to war, it's related to love, it's related to all kinds of solidarity. All, we, everybody can have a different definition of, of what peace is or what it would look like. But it's all related to every element that we already know. And as we see in history... We don't know what peace is, unfortunately. So if we do want to answer this question, we need an openness that is that is out of this world, kind of. We need an input that is not yet there. Mm-hmm. So we need the other. We need to accept this complete other. And this, I find this very telling in this, uh, in how we respond to the refugee situation now. They are kind of 
presenting us with a radical other that we we don't know anything about them but we already call them refugees so before we even see a face we've already decided their fate because we've given them a name or a category of people mm-hmm. so that makes makes it impossible for them to give their newness to this new world shutting them out because we we don't want to look at this radical other we we're f- afraid of it yeah we'd rather stick with what we know and stick with what we the experience we already have yeah we want to defend certain values that we have and this is all this this is good i mean we should defend certain things that we stand for maybe we don't want something completely new but then we shouldn't be find it strange that you know that war happens we can't do either or you know Mm-hmm. We either accept a complete newness and perhaps a situation where we can get out of this circular repetition of history, or we don't, and then we we have the same future for our children as we have for ourselves. Mm-hmm. It also occurs to me that the question of what is peace or what is lasting peace in each context can mean something completely different. So I assume someone in a few hundred years back would have said that to have peace, first you need to have war. My assumption would be that we... We still say that. We still say that, or some people still say that, but the radical other would maybe say that, you know, it's we have to step out of this duality to, to create something completely new. But the context in which I ask a question already shapes the answer. It's true. But even then, even if we would map out all these contexts that we have right now, we still have one context of the world of today. There's still an overlap, an epistemic knowledge. In a certain way, we see these things the same way. So it's not as if we have to look for the right context and then we can answer the question. Whatever the context is, we need to step out of that context. Mm-hmm. How do you do that? Yeah, I can't answer that yet. <laughs> Not for the peace question, but you have done this before for other questions, if I understand you right. Stepping out of the of what you know and trying to look at it in a completely new way. Yeah, but this desire of wanting to do this also stops us from doing it. Mm-hmm. So it's it's uh, it's realizing that this is what makes us human. This necessity to go out of it and being constrained by it at the same time. I've ex- experienced this myself when I was writing my dissertation about change I was stuck and then I read something and if I would read it now it would not be the same thing but something that broke it and that made it 
it turned everything around. This is a personal experience, and I'm not sure yet if you can share this experience. Or I've I've tried to show show it in my writing, but I'm not sure if it if people will be able to read that and experience it in the same way you did. That's what you mean. They will not never be able to experience it in the same way you did because you were at this point in this moment with all all and everything you knew about this questions or di- question or didn't know and this epiphany came to you yeah. somehow. Mm-hmm. And I can show maybe how it worked. But that doesn't mean that every epiphany works like that. That is what I think now. But maybe that is also what my world wants me to think. So that's why every question is valid to be asked as many times as we like. It's never a boring question. Exactly. Because we don't know which the the state of the mind where the question came from. And this is what uh, Deleuze tells about. He talks about this repetition. And I, if, as a child, I was always against repetition because in school I always had to do the same thing over and over again. It was super boring. But he talks about a different type of repetition. It's not repeating that specific act that we try to do, but we repeat the desire and the movement towards a certain experience that we've had before. I think that's why we prayer, for instance, has to be repeated, or a mantra. Mm-hmm. That is, it's not just oh, and now I understand this sentence. No, you, you might, but that doesn't end this understanding. You mm-hmm. repeat it again to get that same experience again. Heidegger said the same to think everything again. If we maybe go back now again to this smaller world of a team spending time together and working together, and everybody knows this kind of person who will insist on asking over and over the same question or bring up the same point again, how can we look at this person in a different way and and, and acknowledge that this could be extremely valuable that this person is doing this? Well, we have to acknowledge the repetition. We have to tell them. We, that's why we have to ask a good question back. Is this what you mean? And then relate what this person is saying to what you think the issue is. Mm-hmm. And if this connection is made, then that person will fi- feel, at, feel at ease because she is acknowledged. So we shouldn't be afraid of the repetition and we should just ask intelligent questions back instead of saying, oh, we've asked this before, we've answered this before. It's yeah. a new day, it's a new, it's a new way of looking at it. It might be really useful to ask the same question again. Exactly. Because when we respond like, oh, this is this person again and oh, we have that again and again and we already understand, then we can never break out of our own little understanding of what we already had. So maybe this being boring and asking the same thing is very important. 
Heidegger said that boringness is, is very important if we want to understand things. Mm-hmm. Because it's uh, it, it it's so frustrating. And that makes us grow and, and do d- things differently. Is there any muscle we can train? Like when we do learn something new, a new skill or a new sports or something, we, we train, we, we do it over and over again, we repeat. Um, what can we do to ask better questions? What muscles can we train to ask better questions? Well, we can ask ourselves, with any question that we ask, we can ask ourselves, what, do, what kind of answer are we looking for here? So you asking me this question right now, are you asking me to say something very smart that you can use in a certain way? So you've already you already know what I what you want me to say, or is it really an open? And do you you know do let people say what they want to say? Do I want to hear myself speak? Do I want to hear my opinion? Repeat it. This is how politicians always ask questions. If the, if you see those debates on the television, then they don't really want to know what the other is thinking. They want the other to say something that they agree with. And that's not really a question. That's just a, a nasty way of, of saying what you want to say. Mm-hmm. Giving the illusion of a question, exactly. somehow. Mm-hmm. Manipulating people in thinking you ask the question, but basically you sent a message. Mm-hmm. So that is a bad question, because it's not a question. So the validity of a question really is only, is it really a question, or am I actually sending already a message or sending already a preconception or an opinion yeah i think that's correct if we all have our own truths and our own experiences as individuals is it also true that a group who spends a lot of time together uh whether small or large will develop a group truth and a group opinion after a while and and that can also be problematic if they then um, think that this is the truth and they collaborate with other groups or with, with a client or with someone else. They ha- the group also has to acknowledge that what they know and what they came up with as a group has its limits, right? It's this, it, this goes on and on and on. Yeah, but I think you can uh, help that by making those truths very explicit. So, and these truths are normally kind of a value system that are the most important values in a certain group, the things that they work towards completely. And there is certain, there are some very interesting um, experiments nowadays with this to see how, how making explicit through a certain process, a, uh, a consult- consultative process, to make explicit what this group actually thinks or what they stand for changes also their approach to other people as a group. Mm-hmm. So it's making ma- them aware of what they stand for is very important. 
then then this this uh, this continuity between them and another group is less uh, harmful. It, it reduces the the size of the black box a little bit. The size of the things that are unknown, though they're still there, but the the we at least try to explain what's behind the thinking and what drives us what what unifies us these things yeah and it's it's also very good to know them because it also creates a community bond between those people in a group like it's not only a bad thing to work together in a group very often and like it's very valuable I think. Mm -hmm. But also it makes you maybe think that you understand each other. So it maybe it's also more difficult to listen to people that you know very well. Or you think you know very well. Mm -hmm. So maybe the closer the people are, the more difficult it is to ask the right questions. <laughs> wow. I, I can feel my brain muscles um, a little bit now. <laughs> um, to finish this very interesting talk with you uh, about asking questions, um, what question do you leave this conversation with? I wonder if a group can do more than one person. If they would um, kind of be, if all the members of the group are able to listen and to ask good questions, can they experience this break, this newness, in a more powerful way than an individual can? And do you have an assumption, just a first assumption about the possible answer for that? No, I don't know. Because in a way, all the other people in the group are others, so they have the potential to have be radically new. But this potential is also in ourselves. This other in us that we don't really know. So I don't know which one is more powerful. Maybe it's just two of the same type of processes. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Two ways to reach a goal. If you can't do it alone, maybe the group can help. If the group cannot help, maybe it's go, it's better to go back and think for yourself. Maybe we have to acknowledge that both is a, an option. And maybe different types of questions need a different approach. That some are better for an individual and others are better in a group. I know, for instance, that these political questions of peace, they can never be answered by an individual. Because it's everybody in, is involved. But another question of what is, how can I be a good person? This I can do and maybe in myself. As you can see from this talk, the perspective of a philosopher can be very valuable for many different topics. If you want to include Nicole Desbouvry in one of your projects, this is where you'll find her, nobieni.wordpress.com. That is n-o-b-y-e-n-i dot wordpress dot com. 
The next episode of the Collaboration Booster will be about shared documents are not shared understanding with virtual collaborationist Judy Reese. I am Nadja Schnetzler, and my passions are innovation, collaboration, and communication. You can find out more on my website, wordanddeed.org. That is word-and-deed.org. Thank you.